its help, its prayers for us in Nepal. We left in 2001, and I think I will say again, it was mentioned this morning, Pastor Montoro mentioned it, there was an occasion in Nepal where we went to go back and renew our visa and a bribe was asked of us. In order that we might renew this visa, we had to pay this bribe. And the bribe was something about the equivalent, equivalent of seven U.S. dollars. So if I would have paid seven, eight U.S. dollars, I could have had the, the visa I needed that we needed. And I did not pay that. We did not pay bribes in Nepal. And so the visa was refused, which means we had to, well, we didn't know really what to do. We had enough. We, did, we couldn't even go to India because it takes three days to get a visa to India. So we flew out of the country for enough time. We flew to Poland, which gave us a place to stay because I did not want to go back to the United States. So it allowed us to stay there before, uh, while we got our visa back to India and we lived in India for five months. Difficult time, but the Lord took care of us. Well, some months later, we returned to Nepal, and we went through the, uh, a difficult time again. Again, there was this need to uh, apply for the visa. No bribe was asked, but again, Pastor Montoro at that time contacted us. We did not have the money necessary for that visa, but at that time, he, he wrote back and forth, as we mentioned today, and at that time, uh, the church gave us uh, the money that he had meant to give us the entirety of the time, and we had enough money to stay in Nepal at that time. It was a wonderful answer to prayer for us. And so we are actually, our staying in Nepal is, is very much tied to um, what the church was able to do for us at that time, and we are appreciative of it. It is Father's Day in which really now every father, every husband is reminded it really should be another Mother's Day. <laughs> Um, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I look like I'm 15. I'm actually 40. And they just told me I need bifocals. So, at any rate... Matthew chapter 26. We will begin reading in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 26 and read down uh, through verse 13. The Bible says this, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said unto His disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Now, I think we those of us who are Christians, we all have favorite portions of Scripture, certainly. And this is one of mine. I find it difficult to preach from those portions of Scripture that are my favorite. One portion of Scripture that I still, I mean, for a long time I've wanted to preach out of that portion, that is Isaiah chapter 53. I still can't put a sermon together. It's just too much for me. It's just too much. It's a wonderful portion of Scripture. But this is another of mine. 
every time I read through the Gospels, I, I think of it this way. That I'm, I'm at school again. You understand? I'm at school again and I'm learning from this woman. And I think we all learn from this woman, or at least we have something here to learn. For in this woman, I see... Well, I see in her a devotion that we all ought to aspire to. A devotion that says, in the words of our sister here, there is no vacation from being a Christian. Isn't that how you put it? It's wonderful stuff. It moved me. And we see in this woman, and in many women of the Scripture, we see a devotion that ought to move us who are men. That ought to humble us who are men. For we behold a beauty of devotion in these women. And, it, and when I am preaching from this passage, I describe it this way. If we could say it any way, I think we should say it this way. It's a very short way of saying it, but I think it's apt. I think it's appropriate. We could say that she loved very well. She loved her Savior very well. And it is a quality that is worthy of our emulation. Men, they read the Scriptures, they, and, and different men then persuade them. Different men um, excite them in the qualities of these men. Perhaps the, the courage of David or even the meekness of Moses. But is this, it is this woman's devotion that humbles me. And we are instructed of her and by her every time we read through the Gospels. Both this passage and the companion passage in Mark chapter 14. Now this woman, what does she do? She enters the, the room of Simon or the house of Simon the leper. But there are a few events that precede her entrance, that come before that entrance. One is this. The Lord, what does He do? We see it in the first few verses. The Lord gathers His disciples together. He tells them in verse 2, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. And the disciples, they hear this, but they do not understand. In fact, I think it is, it is astonishing to all of us how little it is that they understand from their, from their Lord's words. And they say in response, they say astonishingly little to what He has just told them. It should surprise us. And simultaneous to this, we have another gathering. The chief priest, the scribes, the elders of the people, they also assemble together. And they do so, now think about this, they do so to do what? To consider, to consider wickedness. They have decided that they will kill the Holy One of Israel. And so that we now have a setting before us. You have worldly men and the elders and the scribes and with utmost hatred, but also with subtlety. With hatred and subtlety, they deliberately pursue an evil ambition. And simultaneous to this, we have the Lord's disciples. And it is if they sit in a slumber, dumbfounded, unaware of all that is before them and all that is happening around them. The Lord's enemies, they move with speed, with speed to accomplish their objective, and the Lord's servants move none at all. Get that. Get the contrast. Understand it. And weep over it. The Passover is upon them. Two days remain. How many? Two days remain. And the Son of Man will be crucified. He has said so. The Lord has said so. His fate is determined. And so what must be done must be done very quickly. And it is in this setting that this woman steps into the room. Steps into the house of Simon the leper. Now... If you could think about her, we could say this, that she is more noble. She is better. She is better than all the scribes and the elders. Yet, she is like them in a way. 
because she also has a sense of the moment. Do you understand that? She understands the moment in which she lives. And that is extremely, extremely, extremely important. She has a sense of the moment she lives. And it is this understanding of the time in which she lives which causes her to also, like they, to move with focused, focused, focused attention and with deliberate action. She does not just bring mere activity, but she comes with understanding of the day in which she lives. And so she enters the house to anoint the Lord for His burial. And this, to all the others that we, that we see here in the text, this seems outrageous, and it is misunderstood. It is derided. The disciples, it says, that they have indignation in themselves, and yet, what is it? It is the will of God. And her work, it is quite unlike so many well-intentioned efforts of religious people, even of Christians. For too many Christians say, if it is apparently strong, if it is apparently mighty, then it is also godly. But the Lord does not look at things that way. For this woman brings something that is rejected of all those around her, and yet it is received by the Lord. This woman brings a noteworthy sacrifice. And why I think we all have to pay attention to this? Because it is also perfectly tuned both to the time, and get this, the time and the purpose of God's will. Now, who offers this? This woman, the least suspected among them. Consider that this, at this moment, who is also there in that room? The twelve. The twelve. Those who have been with the Lord these many years, these several years, these three and a half years, those closest to Him on the earth. And yet it is, it is this least suspected among them that makes the offering, that brings the box that brings the sacrifice, if you will. But she's not the least circumspect. The Bible uses this word circumspect to, dis to, to, to describe that we are to always be looking around us. Always looking around us. And this woman was circumspect even though she was the least suspected. And this woman, you might ask her, you might ask why must this woman, why should this woman anoint the Lord for His burial? And it is because there was this matter of timing. The Bible said, it says in Ecclesiastes, it reads, A wise man's heart discerneth both time and what? Both time and judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 5. In other words, because, and the text here tells us, the Lord says this, He says, For me you will not have always... But me you have not always, verse 11. Because the Lord would not be with them always, time was very, very precious. What, what, what? Ask yourself, what makes something precious? It's scarcity. If something is rare, if something is, is, is very rare, it automatically becomes precious. And time is so precious, two days remained, the Lord would not always be with them. And so... She had come to anoint Him because He would not be with them always. But more so, this. That, that, that the Jews would anoint the dead, but at the time at which all the women would gather at the tomb, on that first evening, that first Sunday morning, where would the Lord be? He would be risen from the dead. It would be too late. And so if He were to be anointed, it must happen in these few days. And so she comes with the sense of the moment in which she lives. And this is just a long way of saying this. A short way of saying this. And I hope you understand that there are some things which can be done now. Can be done now. That can never be done later because of a scarcity of time. I'm not sure how, 
But this woman, better understood than all the disciples, than all who would become the apostles, she understood better than those closest to Him, better than, if you will, the best of the Christians. She understood the time in which she lived. And it is this understanding that causes her to offer the ointment that she brings. Which reminds us that it is important to understand. To understand what you read. To understand Scripture. It is your understanding in all things that affects what you do. Now, Sonia, we're Southerners. I'm a Tennessean, she's a Kentuckian. We normally, we don't get along. Except when we're in New York. There's nothing to bring Southerners together who can't... It's not that they don't get along with the people of the North. They don't get along with really one another either. We don't say much good about folks from Kentucky down in Tennessee. She's a friend here. And she, I think, did you grow up in a Christian home? We have an incredibly bad problem in our southern churches. It is no longer, as much as they profess to be Bible-believing people, it is not doctrine that is persuading the people in our churches. But if you can have a singing or a singing, you'll get people from all down the road and the hollers showing up at your church. Oh, we're Christians. Oh, we're persuaded by the Bible. We are a Bible-believing people. Are we? What you understand about doctrine does affect what you do. What you understand about Scripture does affect what you do. As we spoke today, doctrine cannot be divorced from practice. So come with whatever you do, like this woman, with understanding. Hey, it's good to be here. I don't think the, North, I don't think the Southerners would have amen that. You're, you're a good people. A good people. Your understanding affects what you do. And though this, if you will, in, in, the, in the ointment we find something that she's giving to the Lord. And though it might be said that the ointment could have any time been offered. It could have been offered any time. Understand that only this night could the same offering be received. It is not merely your giving. It is whether or not God will receive what you bring Him. And I hope you understand that our most well-intentioned efforts, though we bring them with zeal, though we even might bring them with pleasure, they are of little lasting value if God does not also receive them. That is a frightening thought. That is a humbling thought. It is also true. Cain brought the fruit of the ground in zealousness. And the Lord would not receive it. Though it was well-intentioned. And so it is that God sometimes refuses what we offer Him simply because it is not what He needs, nor is it what He prefers. And so it is first necessary to understand something about the mind of God Himself before we presume to bring anything to Him. The question is, what does He need from us? What does He desire from us? The question is not merely, what do we wish to give? I hope you see the distinction. It is not to say that anyone else in this womb understood the woman they did not understand her affection nor the reasons for why she did what she did. They were not merely dismissive, but as I said before, they were indignant, greatly angered. And they called this best gift what? Do you remember? They called it waste. Waste. Verse 8. When the disciples saw it, the fact that she had poured it upon his head, when the disciples saw it, they had indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? And there we see that even the disciples understood neither time nor judgment. Now what is waste? 
It's something that never realizes its intended purpose. That's all it is. You build something for one purpose and never, it never is used in that end. And it becomes wasted. And because there are so many Christians with so many different ideas as to what it is and how it is that we ought to spend the rest of our lives, there is also much real waste because they come with so little understanding. They so little acquaint themselves with the God of the Bible. They're so often persuaded by their own desires. They will rightly say, they will rightly confess that they are gods for Him to use, that they are object of the Lord's use, but they will not say, or they will too often prescribe how it is that God should use them. They will order God as to how it is that He should use them. And the question can only be, what is God's will and what is His intended purpose? And be sure this, that what others, that what others, even spiritual men and even spiritual women, because what we see here, it is the disciples that are mentioned. What so many others deem as waste, if you will offer it, it may be misunderstood, but the Lord will receive it as what? As something precious, just as He received it from this woman. And the disciples, they could only see one way in which this ointment could be used. They said it could be, it could be sold, it, the money could be given to the poor, but they could not see the, the other ways in which God might receive that same gift. They're so narrowly minded, if you will, so little-minded. Not possessing the mind of God, they could only look at things in the, with the mind of man. And if yours is like mine, your mind is very small. It's very narrow. It's very limited. The, the disciples were not unwise in a natural sense, only ignorant to God's purposes and plans. For it is so that the Lord is... And you know this. You know this. But how does it work out in your lives? You, you have to... You have to more carefully consider. And if, you, if you'll allow me to make it the description this way or the analogy this way, it is if the Lord deals in a very different economy than we do. He trades in a different currency. Now, it was a wonderful thing. We came into the city yesterday driving in. and Where were we? I can't recall what part of town we were in, but I think we were walking last night here in Astoria. And there was... I think there were, you had a little market on either side of the street. Just like back in Nepal. Just like back home. We go to the market and we see all these things available and we just we look at this or we look at that and we make our choice. But we take none of those things without what? Without paying for them. These things come at a cost. These things come at a price. These things require a currency. And so it is also with our Lord. That salvation is the gift of God and it comes freely to us. But thereafter, choices remain before us. And if you will, they're available to us. But at a cost. At a cost. And I think you'll understand that even the most wonderful things that are imagined and that are provided for us by our Lord also come with a cost. You think about Paul when he says, he speaks about, he writes about the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you ever thought about that? The, I mean, the excellency of the knowledge, to know the Lord Jesus is excellent. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Does it cost something? Paul said it has a cost to it. And Paul says it counted, I, what? The loss, it cost the loss of what? Really? Did it really? Did it cost the loss of all things? Well, sure it did. Did Paul not have to count those things, all things but what? Dung that he might win Christ? It's just a way of saying that choices lie before us and that to, to experience 
and to receive all that the Lord desires for us, we have to make right choices. And the currency is a loss to self. It's a strange economy and it's different than anything found on this earth. It's so different, it's so strange that we, that we recoil from it. We back away. We run away from it. For when you gain, you actually, when you try to gain, what happens? You lose. And Mark says, or Mark records, even unto your what? Your own soul. And when you try to finish first, you finish what? Is it true? Decide now. Is it so? That the first finish last and that the last do actually finish what? Stranger than any economy we've seen down here. For the Lord deals in a different currency. A loss to self. And more simply, again, the will of the Lord must be done and not our own. And as we offer ourselves for our Lord's pleasure... In this way, we do suffer loss. And others will call it what? Waste. See, something happens in this, this home on this day. And you find the woman offering the gift, offering the ointment, pouring it upon the Savior, upon His head. And she uses something of great, great, great value. But she uses it contrary to the understanding of men. But she does, does so in keeping with the, with the will of the Lord. But there's something even more remarkable. It just doesn't end at that. It's just not, something, it's just not the fact that something of great value is now offered to the Lord. There's something more important here. More precious than the ointment itself is the willingness of this woman. You take oil, and it, no matter how it is used, it contains, it possesses the same properties. I wouldn't suggest that you do it, but, well, you can take WD-40 and you can put it in your engine. Or you can put that oil in your hair. The women in Nepal, they, they, they don't use WD-40, I assure you. But the point is, you can use oil in any number of ways, and it still contains the same properties. What affects its use? Only this, the hand of that, the hand of the person who uses it. And more rare than the ointment was this woman. And it is her willingness, it was her willingness that caused or that affected its best use. The use was called, called waste, but in its loss, and the fact that it was poured out, more was accomplished than all that the critical disciples could have ever imagined. All that they could ever conceive. Something eternal was done. And isn't that what you all say you hope is done? That, that, that God through you accomplishes something eternal? Do you desire so or not? Do you? Do, do, do you as you sing the songs, do you sing, and we sang some this morning, I wish I'd brought those same songs to the, to the pulpit this evening. You sang, some, you sang some words to that end. Did you just go through the motions? Did you just go through the motions? Something, is etern something eternal is accomplished this, this evening or that evening long ago. And for the, Lord, for the Lord says, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for memorial of her. Had the ointment been sold for the poor, it would have benefited man. It would have benefited man. And all men would have spoken of it. And they said, what a good thing she has done. But in that it was poured out unto the Lord, in that it was wasted... In their minds, who did it benefit? It benefited the Lord. The Lord God Almighty. And it is for that purpose that we have been created. To glorify our Lord. And David Brainerd said this. You're, you're familiar with Brainerd, I hope. He said, oh, I was made for eternity. 
that God might be glorified. You know who David Brainerd was? Yeah, some of you do. But here's the tendency, I'm afraid, to confuse. Uh, Christians get a... And it depends upon, to some degree, what churches you find yourself in. But you, it's too often there is a confusion of, of duties with the sacrifice of loss. And I'm afraid too often this is happening, that, that Christians, they begin, they assemble together and they attend or they, they, are, they are dutiful in all outward duties, but they do not live for God's glory. And what you see eventually, eventually it is evident to everyone. And finally it becomes evident to them as well, but then it's too late that they're merely doing something out of mere ritual. And their religion is cold, it is heartless, it is without tears, it is without warmth. And it is called, sometimes, what we now say is fundamentalism. We must be moved by obedience, not, not meeting outward standards only. We all agree on the outward appearance, but we, can, we must do all unto God's glory, doing all because we love God with our whole heart, with our, whole soul, with our soul, with our mind, because we love others, as the Lord says we should, as, that we love others as ourselves. That must be the motive in all this. Otherwise, you're just left with something exterior only. Something that looks godly, something that the disciples would have approved of, but it had no heart. It had no substance. It had no depth. It looked orthodox, <laughs> but it was cold. It was lifeless. It was critical. Anybody can be critical. Not all can serve the Lord like this woman did. They all can. Too many choose not to. There is a difference between working for Christ, one of these buzzwords, and to say, as Paul, to live is Christ. Do you understand? To live is Christ. Adoniram Judson, you have the book here. It is in the bookstore here. There, you should be beating one another, if you must, to get a book and read it here. It's just here. There's no excuse. You all must read it. It's called To the Golden Shore. It's a wonderful book about Adoniram Judson. And he came to this he came to the end of himself. He, he saw, you know who Adonai Judson was, I hope. Huh. You know, he, he went to Andover College, prayed with a group of men, eventually he becomes America's first missionary. And he realizes that one day, and he ends up in Burma, and he realizes one day that his whole motive was wrong. And that he, he desired merely to be America's first missionary. And he's despondent at this. He sees his whole life was, was merely calculation, was merely for man, his own glory. He learned something of this, to live as Christ. And there is nothing else. There is really nothing else. You see it also described in this, Samuel Rutherford. You know of Samuel Rutherford? Read Samuel... Read Samuel Rutherford's letters. Great, great letters. These are merely the letters that he writes to his congregants, to his congregation. He's in jail because he will not say that the king is the head of the church, the king of Scotland. So he finds himself in jail. And he loved his congregation. He loved it deeply. He was in Anwath in Scotland. And he finally, and it's in his letters, they're wonderful things really. There are a few of them that are, that are not worth reading, but on the, on the great majority, I would say 95% of them are lovely, rich, rich things. And he says this, and it's a short phrase, maybe not understandable to some of you, but very much illustrating what I'm hoping to put forth. He says, Anwath, what is Anwath? It was his parish, it was his church. He said, Anwath is not heaven, and preaching is not Christ. Do you understand that? It is not the work that we pursue for Christ's sake. 
but it is the Lord Himself. It is the Lord Himself. And here was this man who loved to preach, who loved his congregation, and, and really he found himself, his mouth closed. No preaching. No ministry. To live, he's, he would have learned is Christ. And if, and this is a hard thing to say, it is certainly something that I'm again and again and again rebuked of. I'm guilty of this. For if we follow our Lord, but that following our Lord, because we say we are followers of the Lord, but if that following of the Lord does not actually work in us, what? Death? That is the New Testament end. Death to ourselves. And if that following of the Lord does not work in us death, then we are not following our Lord closely enough. That is a hard, hard thing to say. And it's something certainly I'm guilty of as well. We are to glorify God and Him only. Otherwise, we are left to a life merely of calculation and reasoning. But as we seek to glorify God, here we see it as well. Something eternal is wrought. Something eternal is done. And as Paul says, the sacrifice of the Gentiles is made acceptable unto God. And I'll end with a few things, but the story or the, the sketches of the lives of two men and a woman. And I hope this illustrates some degree of what we see here. That this woman brings one thing. She has much. She has something very precious. She offers it in contrast to the wisdom of man. And the Lord receives it as precious. We see it illustrated here in the lives of these few people. I'll first speak of a man by the name of Henry Martin or Henry Martin. Again, I ask you, have you ever heard of him? Henry Martin. You, you have to... You, see, this is what you have to really do, and I hate to put it this way because I'm not really concerned with the exteriors, but eventually you have to just throw away your television. There's not time enough in the day, is there? As we heard this morning, you can't be a father. There's not enough time in the day to be a father, a good father. It's, the high, it's, it's among the highest of callings. It is, a, it is perhaps the most difficult of jobs. And that's, I think, why it is tied to the qualifications for the pastorate. That's another point. It's another issue. <laughs> but Henry Martin, we find him in 1781. And he's born in Cornwall, west of England, in the west section of England, in the south Southwest, I believe. And Henry Martin was a student eventually at Cambridge University, one of the colleges there. He's extremely, extremely good, proficient in mathematics. Now, this is remarkable for me because I am extremely poor in math. My father's an engineer. Well, I never had a chance. <laughs> he is so good in mathematics that he becomes what is called there the Cambridge Wrangler. He means he has the, I don't know what that means, but it means he, 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 he won the prize for mathematics at Cambridge University. And we find him where? We find him going, sailing off to India, what is now the area of Kolkata, Calcutta, Sarampur, near Bangladesh, there among the Bengali-speaking people, there with William Carey, and he translates the scriptures there while living in the area into Hindustani. As we talked about with some other people this morning, that is the parent language of both Urdu, spoken by your Pakistanis, and Hindi, spoken by the Indians, or, or, or several Indians, many Indians. And he gives, the literature, he gives the Bible this great mind, and he gives the Bible to the, uh, the Hindustani Bible to the Indic people. And if he had done just that, I think he would have been worthy of our admiration, worthy of our example. But he doesn't do just that. We find him this, doing this. Not taking an airplane, but walking to the deserts of what was then known as what? Persia, Iran. And he gives the Persian people the New Testament, what too many Americans perceive of as their enemy, 
He understood these were men and women for whom our Lord had died for. And so he uses that mind, the mind that God had given him, to, to give the, 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 the Persian New Testament to that people. And that is, I mean, there's so much misunderstanding about Iran in this country anyway. If, you, if I were to tell you that the Iranian government presently prints Martin's Bible, you wouldn't understand. I mean, you wouldn't believe me, but he does. His work remains. The Iranian government prints that Bible now. Sure, not for religious reasons, but for reasons of because it has historical literary value. His work, Martin's work, remains today. But he dies at the age of 32. His lungs are eaten up with tuberculosis. And he dies because he's, he's trying to get back for a furlough. He's walking back to England from Iran to get back on furlough. And he dies somewhere in Turkey at the age of 32. And don't you know that all of his professors at Cambridge said what? What a what? What a waste. What a waste. What possibilities he had. And now, what a waste. What he could have given to England. What he could have given to Scotland. Or Wales. To the United Kingdom. What a waste. There's also the, the story, and I'll try to be more brief here, the, of a woman by the name of um, Lilius Trotter. Lilius Trotter, she, she was a painter. She painted in watercolors. And there was a, an art critic of her day by the man of, a man by the name of John Ruskin. He was a scoundrel, a wicked man. But he, he was thought to be, he had a reputation among the art critics of his day. And he said, this woman, he thought she was the next best thing among the artists of London. But we never see her paintings. We never see them. Why? They're not there. Because we find her instead, not in London, not among the fashionable elite of that day, where she found residence, where she found acceptability for a time, but we find her in Algeria. We find her in Algiers. Because there are places in this world, understand me, there are places, and some of you know better than others, there are places in this world where a, a man can never preach the gospel. They won't allow it. They won't allow a man in the Muslim world to preach to women. They'll not allow it. And so who has to go? Who has to go? A woman. No, she's not pastoring. She just spends the rest of her life going from one door to another doing among the best work that can be done in this world. And Ruskin, the art critic, must have said, what a waste. What a waste. And finally, there's a, the story of um, William McFarland. And the only reason I know of him, there's no book you can read about McFarland. He's another Scot. They're good people, the Scottish. They're good people. If you knew him, you'd love him. You know, culture never gets out of any of us, does it? I've learned that. <laughs> McFarlane, he's also Scottish. He, 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 he studies at St. Andrews, the great Scottish uh, university where John Knox had taught. And McFarlane is also a great mathematician. And the Presbyterians say, we need someone to teach in Bihar. Bihar is a uh, northern Indian state on the border with Nepal. He said, I'll not go to Bihar as a teacher. But he said, I will go as a preacher. And so he went. See, he had zeal. <laughs> it's a terrible thing when our young men don't possess any zeal. They'll play, I mean, I read something the other day when we got back to the United States. So it wasn't the other day. It was, we, we've been back in the United States since... December. And I read something when, when we got back, or after we got back, that the average, the, what would you call them? Somebody who plays video games. You know what a video game is? I'm sure you all do. And the average age of someone playing video games today is 35. 35. These are 35-year-old men. That's where your zeal went. 
That's where it went. There's no mystery. That's where it's gone. But not so with these men. And they went off. And they went off. And they went off. And there he is in Bihar, but he becomes terribly discouraged because nothing is happening among the Bihari people. They do have an orphanage work, the Presbyterians, and he notices these little boys there in Bihar. And they don't, they're not Bihari. Where do they come from, he asks. And they come from Darjeeling. You know where Darjeeling is? Or it's said sometimes here it's Darjeeling. But it's Darjeeling. It's great, great tea. Some of the best tea in the world. The people of Ceylon would disagree with that, but that's how it is. Can't get along about everything, can you? And in there in Darjeeling, the Nepalese people. There was no church in Nepal at all until 1952. No church at all. But the Nepalese, they began to leave Nepal to go east to work in the tea gardens of Darjeeling. And they began to move in 1840, about the same year that McFarland was born. And he's, he, he leaves Bihar and he wanders up into the mountains there. And there he labors for years before there's a convert, but eventually there's thousands there in the tea gardens who have received the Lord Jesus as, as his Savior. And one day... He's, uh, he's cutting down trees in a forest. And what happens? He falls over dead. At the age, I think, if I'm not mistaken, at the age of 42. And surely too there, all the men back at St. Andrews must have thought, what a waste. And so it is true that there are some things of great, great value that God has given you. And the only question is this. How will you use it? Do you understand to the degree that you should something of the mind of God? I mean, I heard it put this way just the other day, and I think for me it was extraordinary. You are reading God's thoughts. God has already thought these things. He has thought these things. He has put His thoughts on paper. And when you read the Bible, you read God's thoughts. And by these, your mind and your heart both must be brought to union and into conformity with God Himself. And I ask you, because, see, if you begin to make too narrow of an application, if I mention a few things, then some of you say, well, that's not about me, or this is not for me, or you ignore the whole sermon. But if I keep it broad, if I keep it general then the Holy Ghost has room to do what? To take these things that are said and now you are responsible like I am to deal with these same facts, with the same logic of Scripture and to ask and to, and to pray, what is it that God desires? And then, all you do is this. If I could put it this way, you find... You, you know what an errand is? An errand. An errand, a task. You find God's errand and then you run off to do it. You run off to pursue it. And I'm going to finish this way by reading a couple of um, verses from the hymn put together by Ann Cousin. The Sands of Time Are Sinking. You know that hymn? Beautiful, beautiful hymn. And Cousins, if you don't know, what she does is she takes, the, she takes Rutherford's letters and puts them together into this hymn. So what you're reading here that is to us wonderful poetry, is these are actually the words of his, of his letters to his congregation. And we sing, I think, four to five stanzas usually in our churches. There are 14 stanzas to this hymn. So I'm going to read, because I think this also illustrates something of what I've been trying to say, a few of those that we normally don't sing, and I'll leave you with that. Because you know that it reads, O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love, so on and so forth. But He also says this, that in Emmanuel's land, He says this, There the red rose of Sharon unfolds its heartsome bloom and fills the air of heaven with ravishing perfume. Oh, to behold its blossom, while by its fragrance fan, while where glory, glory dwelleth 
in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey. Now listen to this. Though seven deaths lay between. So we don't approach this easily. We don't pursue... Heaven has been gifted to us, but we don't reach that destination without, without temptations, without struggles. The Lamb with His fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oft in yon sea-beat prison, my Lord and I held tryst. Tryst is a meeting of lovers. For Anwath, see, because he found that love and he was renewed in that love in prison. For Anwath was not heaven, and preaching was not Christ. And I, meaning yes, and I, my murkiest storm cloud, was by a rainbow spanned, caught from the glory dwelling in Emmanuel's land. But flowers need, now listen, but flowers need night's cool darkness, the moonlight and the dew. So Christ, from one who loved it, his shining oft withdrew. And then for cause of absence, my troubled soul I scanned, but glory shadeless shineth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and I the dews of sorrow were lustered with his love. I'll be blessed, I'll bless the hand that guided, I'll bless the heart that planned, when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Now I'll stop there and I could go on. But I think the choice before all of us is very clear. We every day face our own will. And we every, every day face our own, our own heart. And that is only overcome as we understand something of the Lord Himself. Something of His mind. And only in understanding do we see this balance. Do we see that something must be done today? It can never be done later. God desires something from us today. And it can never be done later. And so the question is for all of you, what is that? What is that? You find God's errand and then you run after it.